Those of you who are familiar with the New Testament know that there's really no biblical author who wrote more about the grace of God than did the Apostle Paul. Uh, And if I were to ask you when and where Paul learned about the power of God's grace, I think most of you would say, on the road to Damascus. And you would be right, at least partly right. That was one of the most unpredictable grace bombs that God ever dropped because no one was a more unlikely candidate to become a Christian than Paul was. I mean, he was the most zealous opponent of Christianity in the world. His birth name was Saul, and he was born just a few years after Jesus was in the city of Tarsus, about 500 miles north of Nazareth, where Jesus grew up. And both Saul's pedigree and his upbringing were predictive of his rise to prominence. He was a a full-blooded Jew whose family tree had roots in the respected tribe of Benjamin. His parents were devout, and they were determined to give their son the very best education possible. In fact, when he was only 13 years old, they sent him off to boarding school in Jerusalem, where he studied under a famous rabbi by the name of Gamaliel. Six years later, he returned to Tarsus, and he became a rising star in the local chapter of the Pharisees. He was obsessively meticulous in obeying both God's laws and the rules and regulations that had been added by the religious bureaucracy over the centuries. No one was more respected in the Jewish community of Tarsus than Saul was. So by the time he returned to Jerusalem, at about the age of 30, um, Jesus, who had been public enemy number one as far as the Pharisees were concerned, had already been crucified. But his followers were claiming that he had also been resurrected. And they saturated Jerusalem with the anti-Pharisaical message that whoever repented of their sins and believed in Jesus would receive forgiveness and eternal life as a free gift. And their message of grace was corroborated by amazing miracles, the same kind of miracles that Jesus himself had performed. And so their little sect had grown exponentially, not just in Jerusalem, but in all Judea and Samaria, and it was still spreading, and if something wasn't done to stop it, it might spread to the very ends of the earth. And Saul wasn't about to let that happen. He made it his mission to stamp out Christianity wherever it flared up. In the book of Acts, Saul said, I was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. For example, when a Christian by the name of Stephen was stoned to death, the scripture says that Saul approved of their killing him. And it says that Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. He said later, I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. 
And one of those cities was Damascus in Syria. Saul went there, sanctioned by the Jewish high priest to apprehend Christians and to bring them to Jerusalem to be punished. And it was during that journey to, Dam- <clears throat> to Damascus that Saul got grace-bombed. I mean, Jesus literally knocked him off his feet. And, and, and he, he put this blinding heavenly spotlight on him. And he actually spoke to him. And in that moment, Saul suddenly realized that he was not a righteous zealot, but that he was actually the worst of sinners. That he had opposed what God himself was doing in the world. And he expected to get what he had coming to him, but instead, Jesus, to the amazement of everyone, forgave him and gave him a fresh start. Now, Saul knew what grace was before that moment. He he knew that grace is a gift that is given to someone who did nothing to deserve it. It wasn't the first time that God acted in kindness toward an unworthy recipient. He was famous for that. But this was the day that Saul first felt personally the power of the grace of God. That jolt of divine power instantly transformed him from a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man into a new creation into God's ultimate trophy of grace. Of all people, Saul would be the first to say that grace empowers us to believe. That's what he would say that the grace of God has the power to do. It has the power to take an unbeliever and turn them into a believer. We might have the tendency to think that faith is something that some people just kind of have naturally and other people don't have, but that's not what Paul would say. He, He would say, You can't conjure this up on your own. None of us has the ability to believe on our own. Until until we were grace-bombed, he said we were spiritually blind. That we were as incapable of believing in Jesus as, as Saul was. Did you know this, that grace is what opened your eyes to the truth about Jesus and gave you the ability to put your faith in him? It wasn't you, it was him. And so it's natural when we hear the word grace, when we think about the grace of God, it's natural for us to connect that word to our salvation. See, grace marks that pivotal moment in our lives before which we were lost and after which we were like heaven-bound children of God. But that wasn't the one and only time that we have experienced the power of God's grace. This is what, everything I've said up to this point is just stuff that you already knew if you're a Christian. You knew that you were saved by grace. The question is, is that all that the grace of God does? And the answer is, absolutely not. Let me ask you this, how long have you been a Christian? Is it just been days, weeks, maybe months, or has it been years? Maybe in some cases here, decades. And here you are, still following Jesus. Is that because, like ever since you've been a Christian, God has answered every prayer you've prayed, just exactly as you hoped he would? I'll bet not. I'll bet that between the time that you decided to follow Jesus and today, 
that you have experienced a lot of trials and disappointments. Maybe there have been times when you have been so weak that you did not think that you would have the power to keep going. You thought that your faith was going to be extinguished once and, once and for all. And yet somehow you kept going. Why? Was that just luck? Was it willpower? No. It was grace. Saul learned that grace is far too powerful to simply save us. It is also what sustains us. Did you know that between the time that Saul became a Christian and the time that he became the Apostle Paul, that there was a period of more than a decade when he lived in obscurity? It's true. Soon after his conversion there in Damascus, he started preaching throughout that city that Jesus was the Son of God. And he was so persuasive that eventually some of his old allies, those those other people that had come to take the Christians away, they plotted to kill him. And he narrowly escaped. He he was lowered, it says in the scripture, you know, through the wall of the city. And and he escaped to Jerusalem. And he hoped that when he got there, he would be welcomed by the the church there, by the Christians. And it it didn't turn out that way because they were understandably skeptical about his testimony. They thought that maybe it was just his way of infiltrating the church so that he could capture more Christians. But there was this guy by the name of Barnabas who vouched for him. And finally, Saul was accepted into the church, and he started preaching in Jerusalem as disruptively as he had in Damascus. And again, an anti-Christian mob tried to kill him. And again, the, the Christians that were there had to help him to escape. And this time they sent him back to his hometown of Tarsus. And you might not realize this when you're watching the highlight reel that we call the book of Acts. But the next time Saul's name is mentioned is 11 years later. From his mid-30s to his mid-40s, it's entirely possible that Saul was just another sort of anonymous member of the Church of Tarsus, being equipped for ministry as covertly as are some of you right now. The only thing that that we know for sure happened during that period in Saul's life is in 2 Corinthians 12. If you have a Bible, you can find this passage. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, it's page 808 in the church Bible. This is where Paul wrote about both his highest high and his lowest low during that decade of invisibility. If you're at 2 Corinthians 12, you can start reading in verse 2. 2 Corinthians 12, 2. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, that's that's why we know when it happened, because it was 14 years later that he wrote this book of 2 Corinthians, He was caught up to the third heaven, he says. And now we're going to be able to decipher from the following verses that the man that he is talking about is actually himself. But he feels awkward saying that because he's not telling the story to pad his apostolic resume. In fact, we're going to see that if he has anything to brag about, it's his weakness. But nonetheless, this happened. Somehow, like like John, the writer of the book of Revelation 
like Paul found himself in heaven. That's what he means by the third heaven when he says, I was caught up in the third heaven. He's not saying that there are different levels of heaven. He's saying, I was caught up beyond the sky and beyond outer space. I, was at, I actually found myself in, in heaven itself, um, the, the dwelling place of God. Keep reading, middle of verse 2. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast... I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say or because of these surpassingly great revelations. So there's the high that he experienced. Somehow, either in the body or out of the body, he actually got to peek into heaven. Now the low. Middle of verse 7. Therefore, in order to keep me from being conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me. This verse raises all kinds of questions, like, for instance, what kind of thorn? I mean, what exactly happened to Saul that tormented him? Answer, beats me. Then there's the question, how can God allow a messenger of Satan to torment a Christian? Answer, beats me. All I know is that God allowed Saul to suffer so intensely that it felt to him like he was being victimized by the devil himself. Tell me you've never felt like that. And I'll bet that when you were in agony, you did exactly what Saul did. Verse 8, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. Like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, Saul begged God, repeatedly, to be set free from his suffering. But, verse 9, he said to me, my, what's the word? My grace is sufficient for you. For my power, that's another word you might want to underline. Because very often when God talks about grace, very close to that word in the scriptures is the word power. It's almost as if he uses those words interchangeably. Grace, power, same thing. He said, my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I'm strong. You want to know what Saul learned during the silent years that made him so unstoppable during his famous years? He learned that it was when he was at his weakest that God's grace, which is to say God's power, was most active and most evident in his life. You see, grace not only empowers us to believe, it also empowers us to endure the most excruciating stretches of life 
without bagging our faith. So what's your thorn in the flesh? With what messenger of Satan have you been tormented? What have you prayed for relief from over and over again? Only to have God say no. Some of you would say, honestly, it's chronic pain. I'm in pain every single day. I'm in pain every hour of every day. And you have no idea how much energy it takes for me simply to function. And you don't know how many times I have prayed to God and said, I could do so much more for you if you would just take this pain away. But he never has. And maybe there are some here who would say, well, my thorn in the flesh has been cancer. The day I was diagnosed, I was determined to do everything that I could do to fight this this cancer. I did everything the doctors told me to do. I changed my whole lifestyle. And I'm still on the wrong side of the percentages. And I've prayed to God to heal me. I can't think of anything that would glorify him more. And yet here I am. I'm still sick. Some of you have suffered from some kind of mental illness. Depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia. It's invisible, but man is it disabling. Therapy hasn't helped, drugs haven't helped, even prayer hasn't helped. Or at least it, it hasn't healed you. You're crying out to God in the middle of the night. Your prayers seem to just be swallowed up by some kind of black hole. God is totally silent, but the devil isn't. Or you're experiencing what really you can only describe as persecution. It might be happening in your family. It might be happening where you work or where you go to school. Whatever it is, there are people around you who are mocking your faith. They're trying to trip you up. They're trying to get you to sin so that they don't have to feel guilty about not being a Christian like you are. They're after you all the time. And you pray for their salvation, or at least to be, you know, released from all this mistreatment, but to no avail. It's happening day after day after day. God doesn't seem to be doing anything. Or maybe for you, you'd say, well, really, my thorn in the flesh is a financial one because I'm unemployed right now, or I I work hard, but I, I never have enough to make ends meet. I can't afford health insurance. I can't give to the church what I want to give because I don't have enough money. I'm drowning in debt. And I've prayed for God to help me with this. And I'm as poor as the day I started praying. Or maybe you're a recovering addict. There was a time when your life was totally controlled by alcohol, by drugs, by pornography, by food, whatever it was. And every single day, you have to fight to not fall back into that destructive freefall. You just wish you could one day wake up and not feel the temptation. But it's still there. Whispering in your ear. Dangling like bait in front of your face. And you've prayed for God to help you overcome it. But it's a fight every single day. See, so many things can wear us down and make us wonder, 
if it's doing us any good at all to follow Jesus. And yet, inexplicably, we keep putting one foot in front of the other on this narrow uphill road of discipleship. And it's in our endurance that other people see, yes, our weakness, but also God's power. We think of grace bombs as, you know, road to Damascus-like experiences. But grace is also the constant drip that keeps us on our feet when it seems as if the forces of hell have made us their target. When we're running on fumes, those are fumes of grace. I went through a period of suffering so intense that during that time, the only biblical character that I could relate to was Job. So much much went so wrong, so suddenly, and then it got worse. And it kept getting worse for months and then for years. And I examined myself like, "What what have I done to deserve this? What sin have I committed? Surely I've done something wrong because there's no way that God would let me experience this if I didn't deserve it. There's something I've done wrong and I couldn't, I couldn't find anything that could explain it and so I finally decided, well, I must be suffering for the sake of Jesus. I, I, I'm suffering because I'm trying to do what Jesus wants me to do. The problem is that I always had this idea that if I'm suffering for the sake of Jesus, then the one thing I get out of it is I get the presence of Jesus. Yeah, I have to go through this, but he'll be with me. He'll be next to me. He'll be whispering in my ear. I understand. I'm with you in this. I will vindicate you. I will restore you. But I didn't feel any of that. Nothing. Jesus said nothing to me. He didn't make his presence known to me in any way. I would wake up in the middle of the night and I went downstairs into my family room and I had this picture, of this, this, this print on the wall of Jesus praying in the wilderness when he was being tempted by the devil. That was the picture on the wall and I could barely see it in the darkness of the night. And I would look at that picture and I'd say, Pray for me, Jesus. Pray for me. Come on. Help me out here. And things just got worse instead of better. He seemed a million miles away. I mean, I would look at, I would look at stuff in the Bible and I'd see Paul who went through terrible suffering. But, you know, a few times in there, Jesus comes to him and he speaks to him words of encouragement in the midst of it. Not me. I felt abandoned. I felt totally alone. And if I'm being honest, I felt that way for about a decade. A couple of weeks ago, um, I was meeting with a group of pastors and we were talking about how to be resilient in the midst of the challenges and setbacks of life and ministry. And several guys shared these really good ideas, none of which worked for me during that decade. And finally I said, you know, I really have only one explanation for the fact that I'm still in ministry, that I'm still even a Christian. God, because I didn't do nothing during that time. Nothing worked. And yet here I am. And I realized as I was studying this 
scripture this week, if I finally had a name for it, grace. See, the simple fact that you and I are still here after all that we have been through is a testament to the powerful grace of God. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, we have already come. Twas grace that led us safe thus far, and grace will lead us home. But, but grace can do even more than that. Not only does it give us the power to believe, not only does it give us the power to endure, but it also empowers us to serve. Let's pick up Saul's story at the point where he transitioned from obscurity to prominence. It happens in Acts 13. It's on page 768. And in this chapter, Saul is part of a team of prophets and teachers at a church in the city of Antioch. But I read that and I say, well, how did he end up in Antioch? And so you just have to go back a couple of chapters and you see that what what happened is that Barnabas, the same guy that introduced him to the church in Jerusalem, actually brought him from Tarsus to Antioch. And the reason why was because there were these Christians in Antioch who started to share their faith, not just with other Jews, but also with non-Jews, with Gentiles. And there was an amazing response to that. So much so that uh, the church in Jerusalem sent Barnabas up to Antioch to help. And when Barnabas came there, people continued to come to Christ in droves. And so after a short time, there was this leadership vacuum. And that's when Barnabas went over to Tarsus to find Saul to recruit him to help him lead that church. For about a year, the two of them... Barnabas and Saul team taught the new believers there in Antioch. And by the time we get to chapter 13, there's a group of five prophets and teachers who are leading the church. And verse 2 of chapter 13 in Acts says that while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them. It was a way of endorsing them for their ministry. It may have been the way that God anointed them in a fresh way with the power of his spirit for their ministry. And then they sent them off. And their first stop was an island called Cyprus. And there they encountered a magician by the name of Elymas who opposed them. He tried to keep people from believing in Jesus. And verse 9 of chapter 13 says, Then Saul, here it is, who was also called Paul... First time we see that in the Bible. The reason I've been calling Paul Saul all this time this morning is because this is the first time when that was the way that he was referred to as Paul. And, and, and Paul is suddenly filled with the Holy Spirit and he strikes Elymas blind. And from that point on, Paul is basically the leader of the team. Look at verse 13. From Paphos, Paul and his companions, see that? Where's Barnabas? Paul and his companions sailed to Perga. And when they, the missionaries, are invited to speak in the synagogue, verse 16 says that Paul was the one who stood up and gave a speech. And a whole bunch of people became Christians. And a whole bunch of people got mad. And verse 50 says that they stirred up persecution against who? Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. See, before that, it had always been Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul. All of a sudden, it's Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas. So they move on to a town called Iconium. 
Same thing happens there, mass conversion, severe persecution. Then they move on to a city called Lystra. There, Paul heals a man who's been crippled since birth, and the people are shouting in chapter 14, verse 11, the gods have come down to us in human form. And look at verse 12, chapter 14, verse 12. Barnabas, they called Zeus, and Paul, they called Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. Now, why am I showing you all this? I just want you to see the change that took place in this man. In a relatively short period of time, Saul, the church member, became Paul the apostle. And he is by far the most prominent character in the rest of the book of Acts. Other than Jesus himself, no one has ever been used by God like Paul was. How do you explain that? We might use words like charisma, or education, or intelligence, or gravitas. You want to know the word that that Paul used to explain it? Grace. To the church that he planted in Corinth, he said, by the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder. And then to the church in Rome, he said, through Jesus we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. To the church in Ephesus, he said, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. There's that word power again, connected to grace. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ. The power of God that flowed through Paul when he exercised his spiritual gifts of apostleship and evangelism and teaching, had nothing to do with his godliness or his grooming or his personality. It was just another way that God gave to someone who did nothing to deserve it even more grace. As if salvation wasn't enough, God said to Paul, now I want to use you as a -a one-of-a-kind conduit of my love and grace to other people. And you know what? You have also been grace-bombed with at least one spiritual gift. See, when Paul wrote to the churches in Corinth and Rome and Ephesus, he didn't just talk about his spiritual gifts, he also talked about theirs. To the church in Corinth, he said, there are different kinds of gifts, and that word gifts there... It comes from the same root word as the word grace. A better translation would probably be there are different kinds of grace gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. To whom? Paul says, to each one, to each one. The manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. Paul says, I'm not the only one who's gifted. You are too. It's the same thing to the Roman Christians. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. And to the church in Ephesus, he says, to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. And then he talks about various leadership gifts that are used to equip the whole church to serve God. And he says, from him, from Christ, the whole body, joined and held together By every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Trust me, you 
are gifted. God in His grace has given you the ability to serve Him, to share His love with others in a way that nobody else can. This is just part of the grace package that every Christian gets. I remember discovering for the first time that God had given me the gift of teaching. I was a a college senior. I'd been a Christian for about a year. And for some reason, somebody asked me to give a talk at a retreat, a college student's retreat. And it wasn't to the whole group. It was just a little tiny group that I was going to talk to for just about, I don't know, five or ten minutes, something like that. And I was so stressed out because I didn't know if I could do it. I, I think other people didn't know if I could do it. They just had to pick somebody. And so they asked me, and I, I can still remember standing up there and teaching from the Bible for the very first time in my life. And it felt to me as if I had just been plugged in to some kind of divine energy source. It was almost like an out-of-body experience where I was going, man, what's happening here? And when I was done teaching the Bible to that group of people, I was pumped. I thought, maybe it's just adrenaline. But then people came up to me, one after the other came up to me, encouraged me, and they told me, God really used you to speak to me. And I was so amazed by that. I was blown away. To this day, every time I teach the Bible, there is something that happens inside of me that I can't explain. Um, kind of like, you know, in Chariots of Fire where Eric Little says, when I run, I feel his pleasure. You know, that's what, that's what when I preach, I feel his pleasure. I feel his power. Some of you are saying, well, I'm glad you do because I don't. But a lot of times, a lot of times, countless times, I've heard people come up to me after church and say, I felt like you were speaking directly to me. And, you know, every time I hear that, I'm like, wasn't me. Wasn't me. That is the grace of God at work. And I'm so, so privileged just to be, like, involved in that. See, that grace is at work Every time Joe visits somebody in the hospital, every time Charlie takes out the trash at the ministry center, every time Jim records a message and then posts it online, every time Kim writes a blog post, every time Tom goes out of his way to encourage other people, every time Meredith prays, every time CP tells anyone who is breathing about Jesus, Every time Doug is standing in the hallway just looking for somebody to help. Every time Jeremy contributes to the elder board with wisdom beyond his years. Every time Amy administrates at the ministry center. Every time Josh expects God to do what no one else is expecting him to do. That's the grace of God at work. And it happens every time you do whatever it is that God has gifted you to do. He doesn't have to use us like he does. It's just another way that he grace bombs us. I love this verse in the first chapter of the Gospel of John, verse 16. It says about Jesus, from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. The grace to believe and the grace to endure and the grace to serve. That is the undeserved kindness of God given so lavishly to us who did nothing to deserve it. And 
I don't know how to even finish this message except to say, I just want to thank God for this. Don't you? just want to say thank you, God, for all that you have given me that I didn't deserve. Just bow your heads with me right now. Let's, um, let's just say thank you to God. Lord, we, um, we've just barely scratched the surface of all that you have done in our lives that we didn't deserve. To think that like out of all the people on this planet that you could have chosen who were, I guess, more deserving than us when none of us are, but, then, but you just looked down and you picked us. Why? It wasn't us. You did that. Thank you for giving us the grace to put our faith in Jesus. We realize that there might be people even in this room right now who've never done that before and we just cry out to you to grace bomb them today. Help them to realize that Jesus died for them. Help them to turn to you and receive that free gift of salvation that you offer. And we want to thank you, Lord, for giving us the grace to endure. And we don't understand all the mysteries of your ways, why sometimes you're so close to us and sometimes you seem so far from us. And sometimes you answer our prayers in a, in a heartbeat and other times you don't. You say no. And there's a lot of confusion and it's hard for us, but the one thing that we know is that somehow you've sustained us. And that you promise that you'll do that all the way till we see you face to face. We so look forward to that day when we can, we can gain from just looking at you the understanding of why we have gone through what we've gone through in this life. But in the meantime, thank you that you're going to keep us. And then that you'd be willing to use us, Lord. That you give us these grace gifts so that we can actually be like channels of your blessing to other people. It's amazing. Thank you for those, um, those opportunities that you give us to serve you. And, 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 and there may be people here who don't know what their gifts are yet, and we pray that you would uh, give them an understanding of how it is that you have equipped them to serve you like no one else can. We're just so amazed by all that you've done for us. May this be a week when we just can't get over the fact that you have been so good to us. May we glorify you for all the grace that you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen.